Okay, let's turn to the book of Acts. We're in chapter 27. I mean, this is like exciting stuff. We've got a major shipwreck that's going to happen. <laughs> and God is going to show himself great again. You know, it's a very repetitive story. You know, man's in crisis, God's great. It kind of works that way. And uh, it's a story about Paul as he is being transported to Rome. I want to back up just a little bit as you're turning there and, and review from chapter 23. Uh, the whole book is about the, the, the infancy of the church and the, the giving of the Holy Spirit and the explosive growth of the kingdom of God. And, uh, but then we find persecution that rises up. In chapter 23, Paul's arrested uh, on false charges of having caused a riot and also defiling the temple. And from chapter 23, 24, 25, 26, he's under trial, being examined by different governors and different kings for these false allegations. And now in chapter 27, we find that after his appeal to Nero, uh, to the emperor, to Caesar, he is now on his way by ship to Rome. And that's where we pick up the text in chapter 27, beginning in verse 1. When it was decided that we would sail for Italy, Paul and some other prisoners were handed over to a centurion named Julius who belonged to the Imperial Regiment. We boarded a ship uh, from Adramidium, about to sail for ports along the coast of the province of Asia, and we put out to sea. Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica, was with us. The next day we landed at Sidon, and Julius, in, in kindness to Paul, allowed him to go to his friends so that they might provide for his needs. From there we put out to sea again and passed to the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. When we had sailed across the open sea off the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we landed at Myra in Lycia. There the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing for Italy and put us on board. We made slow headway for many days and had difficulty arriving off Snidus. When the wind did not allow us to hold our course, we sailed to the lee of Crete Opposite, opposite of Salmon, and we moved along the coast with difficulty and came to a place called Fair Havens near the town of Lycia. Much time had been lost. Sailing had already become dangerous because now it was after the fast. So Paul warned them, Men, I can see that our voyage is going to be disastrous and bring great loss to ship and cargo and to our own lives also. But the centurion instead of listening to uh, what Paul said, followed the advice of the pilot and of the owner of the ship. Since the harbor was unsuitable to winter in, the majority decided that we should sail on, hoping to reach Phoenix and winter there. This was a harbor in Crete facing both southwest and northwest. When a gentle south wind began to blow, they thought they had obtained what they wanted, so they weighed anchor and sailed along the shore of Crete. Before very long, a wind of hurricane force called a northeaster swept down from the island. The ship was caught by the storm and could not head into the wind, so we gave way to it and were driven along. As we passed to the lee of a small island called Kuda, or Kauda, we were hardly able to make the lifeboat secure. When the men had hoisted it aboard, they passed ropes under the ship itself to hold it together. Fearing that they would run aground on the sandbars of Sirtis, they lowered the sea anchor and let the ship be driven along. We took such a violent battering from the storm that the next day they began to throw the cargo overboard. On the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and the storm continued raging, we finally gave up all hope 
of being saved. After the men had gone a long time without food, Paul stood up before them and said, Men, you should have taken my advice not to sail from Crete. Then you would have spared yourselves this damage and loss. But now I urge you to keep up your courage because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. Last night, an angel of the God whose I am and whom I serve stood beside me and said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar. And God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God that it will happen just as he has told me. Nevertheless, we must run aground on some island. On the 14th night, we were still being driven across the Adriatic Sea when about midnight the sailors sensed they were approaching land. They took soundings and found that the water was 120 feet deep. A short time later, they took soundings again and found it was 90 feet deep. Fearing that it would be dashed uh, on the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for daylight. In an attempt to escape from the ship, the sailors let down the lifeboat into the sea, pretending they were going to lower some anchors from the bow. Then Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay with the ship, you cannot be saved. So the soldiers cut the ropes that held the lifeboat and let it fall away. Just before dawn, Paul urged them all to eat. For the last 14 days, he said, you have been in constant suspense and have gone without food. You have not eaten anything. Now I urge you to take some food. You need it to survive. Not one of you will lose a single hair from his head. After he said this, he took some bread and gave thanks to God in front of them all. He broke it and began to eat. They were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. Altogether, there were 276 of us on board. When they had eaten as much as they wanted, they lightened the ship by throwing the grain into the sea. When daylight came, they did not recognize the land, but they saw a bay with a sandy beach where they decided to run the ship aground if they could. Cutting loose the anchors, they left them in the sea and at the same time untied the ropes that held the rudders. Then they hoisted the foresail to the wind and made for the beach. But the ship struck a sandbar and ran aground. The bow stuck fast and would not move and the stern was broken to pieces by the pounding of the surf. The soldiers planned to kill the prisoners to prevent any of them from swimming away and escaping. But the centurion wanted to spare Paul's life and kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and get to land. The rest were to get there on planks or pieces of the ship. In this way, everyone reached land in safety. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. God, we're asking that you would enlighten our understanding, God, that you would open our hearts and that you might do something really wonderful God, with this teaching this morning. Father, that you might teach us and instruct us, that God, that we might carry with us this message outside the church to our friends and our family and our loved ones and those that we work with and our neighbors. God, our associates, people that we see on the island, people that we've known for years. Father, I pray that you would enlighten us, God. And Holy Spirit, we need you. I need you to be able to highlight those aspects that you want me to highlight. And so we're asking that you might fill us and use us and that collectively together as we study your word, that your name might be glorified 
and that we might be edified. And we pray these things in Jesus' name and everyone said, Amen. I've entitled the message this morning, Weathering Life Storms. It seems to me, uh, and I've shared this before, that we're either coming out of a storm in our lives or we're recovering from a storm that we just got out of or we're anticipating the next one. It just seems like that's what life sometimes is like. We have these little windows of times where, where everything's calm and peaceful and placid and it's just, uh, it's beautiful and we don't have a problem in the world. But those times are kind of few and far between. Most of the time we're dealing with some sort of a storm. It might be a little squall and it might be a raging hurricane, but we're dealing with those kinds of things. I, I find it interesting as I prepare this study how many storms we have in the Bible. Uh, there, there are storms everywhere and there are ships. There are a lot of ships in the Bible. Going all the way back to Noah in Genesis 6 through 9, we find Noah on a boat with a raging storm. It went for 40 days and 40 nights. We have uh, Jonah on his way, running away from the call of God to go to Nineveh. He goes the opposite way to Tarshish. And uh, we find him in a raging storm in the book of Jonah, chapter 1. We also find that uh, the disciples as uh, they were only following Jesus' order in Mark chapter 6 to go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, what did they find themselves in? A raging storm. One of these, these storms that just sweep down and suddenly, you know, it's placid, fine, let's sail, and suddenly you're in a battle for your life. The truth is, is that storms happen and uh, storms are going to continue to happen until the final day when Christ comes for the church and, and the storms will end. But until that time, we have to anticipate that we're going to face storms. I think there's a lot we can learn from the text uh, as the disciples, uh, as Paul and some of the believers go through this, uh, but also for ourselves being able to learn how to handle storms ourselves, what we should do, how should we respond, what our priorities should be. I was thinking about this and I was, I was thinking about and musing on why God allows all these storms in our lives in the first place. I mean, does he just hate us, you know? <laughs> is he like, doesn't he care? Uh, is, he, is he, you know, lost on the fact that we're going through problems? And the answer, of course, to all of those is no, is that God does care. He hasn't forgotten about us and he does have a plan for it. And there are three things I want to mention just briefly as we get into this text before we start. Reasons why I believe that God not only allowed the storm in Paul's life, allowed it in, in Jonah's life, allowed it in the disciples' lives, but also allows it to come into our lives are the following. Number one, to humble us and remind us that we need God and we've got to rely on God. So storms have this amazing capacity to get our attention and make us feel completely helpless. The second thing is that storms in life have this tendency to free us from earthly entanglements and misguided priorities. When you're going through a major storm, and this island has been through them, uh, Hurricane Aniki and certainly hurricanes before that, but when you go through a storm, suddenly a lot of things that you thought were important before the storm aren't so important anymore. And, and I think that's a, one of the benefits of storms when they hit. A third reason is they provide an amazing backdrop for the glory of God as he exercises his power and great deliverance for those that call on him. So storms are never wasted. And storms that you're going through in life, if you're in one or coming out of one or headed for one, I can guarantee you that if you are a Christian and you're submitting your life to God, that they are not only not wasted and you don't just have to survive them, but God can actually aggressively advance his cause through your life in the midst of them if you'll allow him to do so. This text begins, of course, in verse 1 with an explanation of the destination. And the destination is Rome. Some 1,800 miles of 
if the crow were to fly to all these ports in a straight line, it's about 1,800 miles, but with all the tacking and all the blowing off course, it's probably closer to the distance between Hawaii and California. It was a long trip, a long voyage. The cargo, we're told, is Paul, a whole bunch of other prisoners who probably most were headed for the death penalty in Rome, and also a man named Aristarchus who we were introduced to in Acts chapter 19 who was a worshiper of God, was caught by this crowd of worshipers of Artemis in Ephesus, was attacked and was seized and was arrested. Now we don't know if, if Aristarchus is on this boat because he's going to his own trial, but many scholars believe it's quite possible that Aristarchus was on that boat because he allowed himself to become a self-appointed servant, bondservant of Paul simply so that Paul wouldn't travel alone on what might have been and could have been his last trip to Rome. And so if that's the case, we've got a, a, a man who is modeling what Jesus said is true friendship, a life laid down for a friend. Luke is also there. We know that because he's the writer of the book. And he's giving an enormous amount of very detailed information about the trip, the voyage, the ships, the activities of the, uh, of the crew, and, uh, and the outcome of the entire uh, voyage. We also know because he uses the personal plural pronoun, we, repeatedly throughout the text. So Luke is there. We also know that uh, the, the, uh, the boat, especially once it uh, embarked from Myra, was loaded with grain and cargo. This was a huge ship, probably in the range of 250 feet long, and it was a tugboat. Man, this thing was just a monster boat uh, for that time. And it was just packed with grain and cargo that they were going to be taking to Rome and ports along the way to make a killing in, in this particular trip. And we'll talk about why, uh, uh, why they were going to make so much money in just, a, in just a few moments. We also know that there was an escort, a Roman centurion named Julius, we know that centurions were commanders of a hundred men. Whether all of these men were on the boat, we don't know. But we can assume that we had crew, we had a pilot, we had the owner of the boat, we had Paul, Aristarchus, we had Luke, we had prisoners, and then we had uh, these guards that were guarding uh, these prisoners. The Bible tells us in verse 37 that there were 276 men on board, which is a big crew. Most people don't like to travel with a, a rabble of prisoners. And usually when Roman uh, centurions would take prisoners on this kind of a trip, they'd pick some sort of a cargo ship, which this was, from, uh, from Egypt, and, uh, and they would take, or Alexandria, and they would take this, this ship with all of these prisoners on board uh, because it was, of course, safe for the, uh, the, the people that were actually traveling, but you didn't have tourists going on these, on these boats with all these prisoners. The travel log is quite extensive, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it uh, this morning, but it's quite interesting, all the ports that they, that they uh, uh, landed in and left from. But they began in Caesarea, which is right on the coastline of Israel, and they went all the way, if you, if you have a map here, and this is Israel over here, and you've got Turkey up here, they basically made their way along the coastline. Crete's down over here in the middle of the Mediterranean, Okay, so Crete's over here, and they get blown over here and blown off course over here, and they finally make it to Malta, and Italy and Rome is up here. So they're, they're basically making their way across, uh, going eastward across the Mediterranean Sea, and they land at a place called Fair Havens where, where Paul gives them a warning in verses 9 through 10. And he's predicting a disastrous voyage. Don't you just love people like that? 
<laughs> it's going to fail. You're going to die. You know, it's like, okay, whatever, you know. So Paul is predicting this. Now, it's interesting because when I studied this, I thought maybe he's hearing a word from God. But the Greek precludes that because the word in Greek um, is theoreo, where we get our word to theorize. It's a theory. He's putting information together. He's putting his knowledge of the sea together. Now, remember, Paul's an extensive traveler. He's already uh, been on three missionary journeys. He sailed in excess of 3,500 miles in the last couple of years uh, going on these missions journeys. And he's been in at least two shipwrecks already. And so he knows the sea. He knows, he knows the seasons and, and he, they make a point of saying it was just after the fast. The fast at this time in 59 AD fell on October 5th. The terrible, dangerous time of traveling was anywhere from beginning of September to the end of November. And they were sailing right in the middle of the most dangerous time in the Mediterranean. This area um, off of Sirtis, which they had these sandbars, is like a, it's like a, it's a graveyard for ships. Even today, they do a lot of excavation down there and, and uh, dives to go see these ships or trying to pull ships up. Uh, in 91, there was a ship called the Oceanus. Some of you are familiar with that ship. And, uh, and that sunk it right off the north coast of Africa, which isn't too far from where we're looking at right now in this text today. But it was a very dangerous area. And Paul puts all this information together and says, I, I think this is going to be a disaster. Now, there's a great verse in Proverbs 27:12 that says the prudent see danger and take refuge, but the simple keep going and suffer for it. But these guys that were sailing weren't just simple, they were greedy. They were trying to make a killing at a time when nobody was sailing. You guys in business, you know what it's like. If you can provide a product when no one else can, you can, you can spike the price. You can really, you can make some serious money when no one else wants to do it, when no one else has the courage to do it. And so these sailors are thinking big money. It's kind of like the... What's the catch show on uh, the, on, on, um, Deadliest Catch, thank you. On Deadliest Catch, these guys go out and make like 20 grand in five days, you know? And it's dangerous business, but they do it because there's big money involved. And so despite Paul's warning, uh, the majority decided to keep on sailing. And uh, of course, that was at the advice of the, uh, the pilot. The owner was on board. Julius was influenced by that. But also, uh, keep in mind that Fair Havens was like the most boring port on the planet. And these guys were going to have to winter there for three months. And, uh, you know, the crew doesn't want to winter in a no-man's land. They want to winter at a decent spot. So they're heading to Phoenix, which is a much, much bigger city. And so everybody votes, kind of against the better sense that they had, but because of greed and because of just personal comfort and excitement about, uh, about a, a more happening uh, port of entry, uh, they continued on. And it says that a... That a uh, a moderate south wind picked up and they thought, this is it, it's all looking good. Well, they set sail. And the passage tells us, in, uh, beginning in verse uh, 13, that this massive hurricane, it's called a nor'easter, and this massive hurricane came off of Crete and just plowed the ship. This island, we know about hurricanes. In fact, I remember when I got here uh, about 13 years ago, we would visit people's homes in the church and we're getting to know everybody and, and everybody would say, you know, can we show you our video of Aniki? 
And I'm, I'm fascinated by that stuff. I mean, I just love all that kind of stuff. And so I said, sure. So Becky and I sat down on the couch and they'd put the video on. And, we're, you know, we're watching as they're describing the, the wind and the palm trees are bending over and the storm hasn't really hit in its, in its intensity yet. And then it gets worse and worse and worse. And then pretty soon people, you can hear the frightened voices on the, on the videotape of this family that filmed it. And then you watch the windows blow out and then you watch the, the roof blow away. And I'm sitting there just glued. I'm just fascinated. And, I, and suddenly I hear crying behind me. And, and what for me is, is simply just an incredibly interesting video is a life experience for those that have been through it. And, and you that were here in 92, you know what, you know what it was like to be here, how, how fearsome it is to be hit with a storm like that and the suddenness of it. I remember um, years ago being in upstate New York and uh, I was an associate pastor at a church there and uh, every year we had a summer camp and it was at a place called Pathfinder that the, that the church and the denomination owned. And so we'd go up to Pathfinder, it was on a beautiful lake and, uh, you know, every year we had canoe race. It was like one of these big events that we had there, and it was, it was just wonderful. All the families would participate, little kids, grandmas, grandpas, everybody in between, and they'd all pair up in these aluminum canoes, and they'd paddle about half a mile out uh, to a buoy that we would set up and paddle back, and the first one back won a prize. So it was just, uh, it was one of those things. And they put me in charge of being the, the boat out at the buoy. And so I was, uh, you know, I had, I, I actually was trained as a lifeguard earlier in another life. And so they put me in charge and said, you're the guy, you know, you're the only lifeguard that's here that's trained. And so I said, okay, I'll go out. So I paddle out there. And then suddenly as I'm paddling out, you know, just casually getting out there and I got a bullhorn for them to, you know, to begin the race. I, I notice the wind is kind of picking up, you know, I mean, it's, it's really picking up and it's kind of sweeping down from this valley near the, near the, uh, near the camp and near this lake. And uh, I'm thinking to myself, I wonder if I should cancel this. You know, this looks a little scary. Maybe I should have them hug along the coast. And, um, and, and the, one of the guys that was with me said, no, 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 it'll be all right. And it was one of those things where it was kind of like Paul saying, hey, I, I'm not sure this is such a good idea, but I didn't know the area. And suddenly we, you know, I, we went ahead and started the race. Ah, you know, the horn went off and, you know, all these little people are out there and they're supposed to be wearing life vests, but some of them just have them in the canoe. You know what you do when you go kayaking. <laughs> You're supposed to have it, but it's just like strapped to the kayak, you know? And some of them were like that. And so they're all, you know, paddling out, a lot of laughter, a lot of excitement, a lot of splashing of paddles and everything. And they get out there, and by the time they get out just a half a mile, that suddenly, the wind picked up. And now we aren't dealing with little, you know, ripples. We're talking about waves uh, and cresting waves on this lake. And they get out to the buoy, and I'm thinking to myself, oh, no, this is a disaster waiting to happen. And they, the first person comes around the first buoy and makes the turn and broadsides the wind and the wave and flip right over. The next one turns the corner, broadsides, flips, turns over. 25 canoes all went under that day. And, 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 and there, were, there were buoys and paddles and, and life vests everywhere. And I had no idea what to do, except I got to start rescuing all these people. So with the help of a couple of people, I'm sitting there pulling people out of the water. It took us two hours to get everyone out of the water. And it wasn't until we finally got to land and we did a head count and everybody got together and said, does everybody have everybody? Before we finally realized that we hadn't lost anybody. But it was one of the most unbelievable experiences I've ever had. I've never seen a storm rise up so quickly, sweeping off a mountain range. That's what's happening in this context. And it's, it's just, it's shocking. And yet these sailors uh, knew about the, the capacity of this wind. This particular area was kind of known as the Bermuda Triangle of, of the Mediterranean Sea. 
And so they were hit by this, this massive, massive hurricane force storm. Verse 15 through 20 tells us the impact that it had on these men. They couldn't head into the wind. They gave way and were driven along by the wind. And it got so desperate that they passed ropes under the ship, which is called frapping. Frapping is when you take cables or ropes and you crisscross them under the, under the, uh, the hull of the ship. They're, they're actually trying to hold the ship together with string, essentially, you know, trying to keep the ship from breaking apart. And it got worse because they threw the cargo and tackle overboard. This would have consisted of, of sails and cables and furniture and baggage and anything that wasn't nailed down. They were dumping it. Why? Because the ship was taking on water. The, the, uh, the ship was beginning to sink already at this point. It's the same strategy, of course, that, that the crew in Jonah's day used. They were dumping everything, finally having to dump Jonah himself. But I was kind of thinking about this whole, this whole issue of, of lightening the load. And I was thinking about actually uh, a passage in Hebrews 12.1 where it says that because we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, the saints and the angels and the, the presence of God uh, in, in the heavens, that we are to throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles us so that we can run with endurance the race marked out for us. I want to I stop for a second and, and kind of bring this home in a very practical way. The biggest challenge that I think most of us face in life is, is our stuff. It's all the preconditions that we have in life about what life is going to be like. And, and we kind of come to God and say, God, um, the house, the car, uh, the vacations, the 401k, the whatever it is, the kids, you know, we've got all these things. And, and God, now that I've kind of made my point clear about what's important to me, I'm giving you whatever you want that's left. Do you know what I'm talking about, right? And we, we kind of have this precondition in our mind that everything has to survive if, if God is going to be faithful with us, right? That everything has to make it through, that everything has to come with us, whether it's in ministry or making it through a storm or, you know, whatever adventure or call that God has on our life, we, we're sitting there with this giant bag dragging this stuff with us and say, I'm ready to go, you know, and we're, we're, we're pulling up to the, to the line, the starting line for a foot race. And we've got this gargantuan bag behind us and says, I, I'm going to win this race, you know, for the glory of God. And we got like 800 pounds behind us, you know, that we're pulling along. The thing that, that really hit me about this text that I want to I encourage you with because it really inspired me and spoke to me, is that I need to be doing hurricane fire drills. I need to do shipwreck fire drills. And I, I've done fire drills before in my life, you know, those temptation fire drills where I, I'll get in front of the mirror and, I, and I'll imagine temptations that might come my way. And rather than being surprised when they come, is I actually go through little fire drills with myself and I'll look in the mirror and I'll say, Bob, you know, this temptation is coming and I'll go, no, Bob, don't, Bob. <laughs> No, you know, and I'll say, good job, good job. Then I'll give myself another, another temptation. <laughs> and I'll be thinking to myself what the temptation might be and the, the circumstances where I might be vulnerable. And I'll tell myself, no, don't do it. There's too much at stake, you know. So actually, when I go through my little fire drills, uh, they actually prepare me. I know it sounds kind of silly, but you know, we do fire drills for a lot of things. And what, is, what does a fire drill do? It prepares you. So in a moment of chaos or uncertainty or fogginess of your thinking, you know the right thing to do. I want to suggest that we need shipwreck fire drills. What do I mean by that? Well, let's say you stand in front of the mirror and, and you tell yourself you're going to lose your home. You're going to lose your car. You can't make your payments because of the subprime lending problem 
or because of the economy or because you, you spent all your vacation money on ATA airline tickets that you'll never, you're never going to see again, which is my story. Uh, and I, I happen to shop Aloha too, so we, we lost on all ends here. Uh, but you, you, know, you look at that and you think, okay, what am I going to do? What am I willing to let go of? It's a, it's a shipwrecked fire drill, in essence. It's the ability to lighten the load and say, you know what? I can survive that. That'll be okay. It's not the end of the world. And suddenly I, I, I begin to play out in my mind a shipwrecked fire drill. And God has actually asked me to do this on a number of occasions where I'm like, Lord, this is, a, this is, this is hard. You know, what would you do, Bob, if you lost your sons? Would you still serve me? What would you do if you lost your wife? Would you still serve me? And I'm sitting there gulping, you know, it's like, yeah, I would. But it's a fire drill and it prepares my heart. And I want to share with you that, that there's an aspect of this related to the cargo and, and the profitability of all these things that the ship was carrying that they started throwing overboard when they realized what was at stake. But this brings Christians into crisis when they face these things because I want to suggest to you that we really haven't had a shipwreck fire drill in our hearts before God and said, God, it's all yours anyway. If you want me to lose everything, I'll lose it. It's like a, a great example of this, of course, is Job when he said, hey, he lost his family, lost his kids, lost his business, lost his standing in the community, lost everything. And he said, naked I came, naked I'll return. Blessed be the name of the Lord. This is a man that had done shipwreck fire drills. We're not actually told that in the Bible. But I believe by, based on his response that this was a man that, that understood that it wasn't his. I, I don't want to belabor this point, but I think it's so important. I think it's something that we should probably really consider. You know, when you get to that place of, of realizing, you know, you're trying to hold on to everything and suddenly you can't hold on to it anymore and you let it go and you suddenly feel peaceful. You, you know what I'm talking about? But you know that, that stage just before you let it go and you're frantic, you know, and you're dying and you're thinking, where is God and he must hate me? What did I do, you know? But I believe that God oftentimes brings us into these experiences to release us from the very things that are preventing us from being as fruitful as he wants us to be. This is what the parable of the sower says, the third type of soil, good soil choked out by weeds. The cares of this life, the concerns about money, all of these things that consume us, this giant bag that we're dragging behind us as we want to run our race with Christ. And sometimes God just says, let go of the bag. I have you. Everything is going to be okay. You see, he's got an inheritance in, in the kingdom waiting for us. Everything is there for us. The junk that we've got in the bag is like garage sale, garage sale material. It's like stuff that even garage salers don't want compared to the kingdom of God. It's the stuff that you have to take to the humane society after you've had your garage sale. That's what this stuff is like in comparison with what God has in store for us. And so every once in a while, for our own sake, God has this, this plan to loosen it up a little bit. He's not trying to harm us, but he's trying to counter the very thing that will keep us from having this enormous investment in the kingdom of heaven, and it's this giant bag of stuff that we drag around with us. I want to say one more thing about this before I move on. Some of you are thinking, please move on. It's over already. Okay, we get the message. I want to just say one more thing about it. In, in Timothy, Paul is writing Timothy, and he says, Warn those who are rich, he says, to be full of good deeds, to, to bless, to, to, be, to be using their, their resources for the kingdom of God. But he also says, God gives us all these things for our enjoyment. So God isn't saying, you know, dump the bag. 
He's just saying keep everything in perspective. So when the storms come, your, your life isn't completely falling apart and you're so consumed with, with the travesty of your own experience that you're not able to do another very virtuous and important part of how a Christian goes through a crisis like that and that's serving other people. You can't serve other people and love other people in the midst of a crisis when you're trying to hold on to your bag and drag your bag with you. So all I'm saying is that we need to have this heart of being willing to release things and even throw stuff overboard and realize it's going to be okay. And I want to speak directly to some of you who are going through a financial crisis right now and the job market's changing and shifting and we're possibly looking at a recession and the dollar value is dropping against pretty much every other currency in the world. And I want to encourage you, God is on the throne. God will see you through. God is always faithful. God will never leave you. And God can bring you home. These are the truths of the Bible that are laid out for us. But in the context of this, this voyage, the text tells us that they gave up all hope of being saved. It means all expectations or confidence of, of something good happening in the future just vaporized. And they gave up all hope. Even Luke includes himself in this category. They couldn't navigate and they couldn't eat. Any of you ever been on a stress diet? Am I the only guy that's been on a stress diet before? It's the most remarkable, wonderful, effective diet on the planet. It may not, it may not do well for you in the long run, uh, but when the stress comes, boy, does it take your appetite away, you know? And I've been on a stress diet a number of times, and I'm thinking to myself, well, it's not all bad. I'm losing some weight that I gained during Christmas or whatever, you know? And so, but this stress diet is basically what these sailors are experiencing, so much so that these guys can't even eat. And, uh, and so I, I find it interesting that we've, we've got this, this very hopeful situation this boat full of grain, all these great plans, and then they come into this storm and suddenly they're throwing everything overboard and suddenly they, they don't even think they're going to make it anymore. And I'm amazed how many times in the Bible God brings his people to situations just like that. Over and over and over it happens in the Bible where the people are brought to this point of terrible crisis, shocking crisis. How about the people of Israel when they were leaving Egypt and they thought, oh, what great plans, you know, this is awesome. And they're leaving, with, it's a giant party. They've basically plundered Egypt and they're going away richer than they can even possibly imagine. And they've got great hopes and then they get to the Red Sea and it's blocking them and the Egyptians are hot in pursuit and they came to a point of crisis. I think about Gideon's men. He had thousands of guys. God whittles it down to 300 and they're in a crisis facing what the Bible says the Amorites were as, as many as the sand in the seashore. And they're facing it. It's, it's a terrible crisis. Hezekiah uh, facing uh, the Amorites and, uh, or the Assyrians in 2 Kings chapter 20. And he's facing just this massive invasion and he's at, he comes to a crisis, a godly king that loved the Lord, served God didn't really do anything wrong. But God, for his own purposes, was bringing the people of Israel to the end of themselves and the end of their own resources. And it was the backdrop for the display of God's power and deliverance. And the Bible says us, uh, tells us in the course of the night before they even engaged in battle, the angel of the Lord, in response to Hezekiah's cry for help, went out and killed 185,000 men in one night. Isn't that amazing? These numbers are, are hard to even grasp. But an angel of the Lord took care of the enemy in one night. 
One of my favorite verses in, in, in the Bible, and I've got a number of them, but this is another favorite, is in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8. And uh, Paul, in the context of this verse, is actually describing some of the challenges he's had during his Asian ministry, part of what, which has already taken place and part of, of which is going to be taking place. But he says, we don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about the hardships we suffered in the province of Asia, all of the sufferings that he's already been through. We were under great pressure far beyond our ability to endure so that we despaired even of life. Now what Paul is describing is coming to such a, such a degree of hopelessness and despair and exhaustion that he wanted to end it all. He saw no hope, no, no rescue, no deliverance. And so he came to the point where it's like, I gotta, he's either gonna end it himself or he's prepared like Elijah was to just put me out of my misery, God. Just end it. I've got nothing left. But he goes on to say, that this happened, all of these events, these crises, these storms, these events in his life that were so challenging, he said, this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Do you, do you understand what he's saying? That the tendency of our human heart is to rely on ourselves. We're dragging our big bag behind us and we're trying to negotiate all this stuff and keep it with us and some of it falls out and we're trying to scoop it up here and scoop it up here and keep moving forward. And, and then suddenly a storm hits and we're, we're frantic trying to figure out how we're going to save the bag and our lives at the same time. But God allows these storms to come and Paul says it directly. These things happened that we might not rely on ourselves, the human tendency, but on God who raises the dead. And we're going to see that, not only the resurrection of the dead, but he saved 276 men's lives on this particular venture of faith. Well, Paul, in verse 21, the Bible tells us that he rebukes them. Uh, it, it almost looks like a sophomoric, I told you so, uh, but that's not really what he's saying. What he's saying is that, you know, my advice was good the first time, and I know you guys didn't really know me, and you don't know my experience, but it's really important for you to realize that I was correct only because what I'm about to say next to you is so critical that you listen carefully. And so he begins to reveal the source of his confidence that everyone would live. And I believe this, uh, this source, of course, the Bible tells us is an angel. That I believe that, the, though the text doesn't tell us, came in response to the cry and the prayer of the Apostle Paul. We can never underestimate the power of prayer in a crisis, but sometimes it's the last thing we think of doing. You know, we shoot up this little, I call them softball prayers. You know, it's just this little, you know, short 30-second prayer and then we're dragging the stuff and working with the stuff and trying to figure out what to do with the stuff and how to keep the stuff with us and how to, how to maintain the stuff and how to keep the stuff on board the ship and, and we don't want to sink. We don't want anything to be lost. We want it all. And yet the Apostle Paul in this context is praying and we're going to have more evidence of that in just a few minutes as God answers his prayer. But the Bible tells us that, that God answers the prayer of those that call out to him. In, uh, in, in Psalm 30, 34, 17, it says, the righteous cry out and the Lord hears them and he delivers them from all their troubles. Some of you might be in some trouble today. I would be surprised if we don't have a, a, a number of people that are facing a storm right now and you're in the middle of it. And what I wanna tell you and encourage you with is the most important thing you can do is first of all, have your, your shipwreck fire drill and realize that you don't have to survive and your stuff doesn't have to survive either. You belong to God. It's his business. But secondly, pray. Spend at least as much time praying as you're trying to keep your junk together, you know? But just pray. 
and surrender it to God. Pray as a family, fast, seek the Lord and ask him for help. But because Paul did these things, God sent an angel and the first thing the angel said is, don't be afraid, Paul. It actually, in the Greek, it, it means stop being afraid, meaning Paul was afraid. You know, 70 time, 79 times in the New Testament, the Bible says, don't be afraid. And there's a very good reason because life is fearsome sometimes, isn't it? I get frightened sometimes. We all do. We don't know what's coming. We don't know how we're going to manage. We don't know how we're going to escape. Sometimes we've done it to ourselves. But the angel comes to Paul and gives these very comforting words and says, Paul, don't be afraid. I love Isaiah 41.10. So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you. That's watching out for your junk. Don't anxiously look about you. I will help you. I will strengthen you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. These are the words of God, not just to the prophets, not just to that time, but even to us today. Don't fear. I want to say it as clearly as I can to you. So do not fear. Do not be anxious. Your God, the creator of the universe, is with you. He will rescue you. He is watching over you. And he is able to bring you home to absolute safety. He also says to Paul that you're going to stand trial before Caesar, basically communicating three things. Paul's in the right place doing the right thing. Secondly, that Paul is going to Rome. Thirdly, that he's virtually immortal until that time comes. And so Paul doesn't have to have any fear at all. And he also says something interesting that's kind of an addition, uh, an add-on that wasn't even necessary, but he says, God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. I love that. God has graciously given you. Why? Because I believe Paul was praying for these, these 275 additional passengers. He wasn't just praying for himself for deliverance, but I, I believe the Apostle Paul was crying out to God for the entire ship's salvation. I was kind of thinking about this and in, in kind of changing the metaphor a bit, but still using the idea of a ship is that all of us are on a voyage. And we've got certain people who are on board with us. We've got our family. We've got people we work with. We've got our fellowship here at church. We've got people in the community that we have influence with and that we relate to, friends that we surf with or, or have activity with, people that we've known for years. Those are the people on your ship. I've got people on my ship. You've got people on, on your ship. And what I want to say is that I believe God has put your ship together, your very specialized, very specific network of relationships that God might use you like Paul in crying out to God that not one would be lost, that God would use you to be a part of the salvation of every person so that though they don't know Christ, they might come to know Christ. So though they don't know how to handle the storms of life, that you are there at that moment, confident in God, hearing from God, empowered by God, already did your fire drill, your shipwreck fire drill, and you're not in a place of scrambling, but you're in a place of prayer, and you're in a place of giving the proper word at the proper time to strengthen those that are in need. And that's what Paul did. He exhorted them to believe in God. He says, keep up your courage. What he really means in the Greek is be of good cheer. And all together we said, yay, yay. <laughs> I want to be of good courage. I really want to have faith, but the best I can do is yay, you know, give me some more courage, Lord, you know. And so Paul says to them, be of good courage. The Lord had encouraged Paul on at least four occasions and Paul is a man who passes on the encouragement to others. 
The Bible speaks of the power of encouragement repeatedly. We need to be men and women who have already done our shipwreck fire drill and we're available emotionally, spiritually, physically to help those that have not done the shipwreck fire drill. And the most important shipwreck fire drill is coming to know Christ, making a decision for Jesus. And we need to be freed up to help people that have not made that decision. Able to comfort those in all our troubles with the comfort that we ourselves have received from God. And Paul says, I have faith in God that it's going to come to pass just as God said. I think it's interesting that Paul didn't say, you guys need to come to Christ. I'm sure he's going to talk about that later. But right now he's saying, look, I have faith. I have faith that's going to happen. You hold on to me because I'm holding on to God. And sometimes that's the best that a friend of yours that doesn't know the Lord can do. They can't reach out to God, but they can reach out to you. And as you have faith for them and yourself, they can hold on to you. And God can bring them through the midst of the storm. And so Paul says that we're going to run aground. Well, in verse 27 and 28, the sailors sensed this landfall coming. They feared being dashed against the rocks, dropped anchor. And uh, some, of the, some, of, some of them, they all prayed for daylight, but it's not prosukomai, which is the fervent prayer of a, of a righteous man, but we're talking about yukomai, which is, you know, I hope, I hope, knock on wood. They're wishing uh, that they're going to make it through the night. And some of them attempted a lifeboat escape. I think this is so funny because I've got my own lifeboat stories. Do you have lifeboat stories? Where I'm like, the ship is moving and it's like, it's frightening to me. And I'm thinking, I'd love to just go down to Na Willy Willy and privately buy a little boat and just sail away. And no one would ever know what happened to me. I've got a life insurance policy. My wife will be fine. And you know, the kids, don't, well, I don't know. It's not, nobody's going to be fine. But you know, you, get, you go through these things, these, these fantasies in your mind of somehow just kind of slipping away and leaving the stress and the pressure and the storm. Am I the only one? Does anybody else sometimes, maybe not the, light, maybe not the sailboat, some of you are waving your hands and your spouse is like, what are you doing? <laughs> don't tell me you're going <laughs> to run away from me. But you know, we all have these times when it's like the, the pressure mounts and we're just like, I can't take it anymore. I just can't go another day. And, and we have these little fantasies of somehow escaping. And that's what these, these, uh, these crew members are thinking. They're just like, we're just going to get out of here. We, we know that it's going to be disastrous for people behind us, but we have to leave. I can't take the pressure. I can't take the stress. I can't take the suspense. We're going to venture on our own and see if we can at least save ourselves. But Paul encouraged them and warned them against desertion and said something interesting. He says, if these guys don't stay on board, none of us will make it because God was collectively going to save this entire ship. And I, and I want to just say one more thing about this briefly. For those of you that are thinking about running away, can I just encourage you not to run away? Because deliverance is around the corner. Don't run away from your marriage. Don't run away from your commitments. Don't run away from the pressure of your financial situation. Don't run away from your job. Don't run away from your responsibility as a father or a mother. Don't run away. Don't run away. This is a this is a, this is a lifeboat fire drill. No, I won't do it. <laughs> I'm not going to run away. <laughs> you, you coward, don't do it. Be more courageous. You can stand this, you know. And so we need to have these little conversations with ourselves and just say we're not going to run away. And so Paul urges them to eat in verse 34 and 35. And it's just amazing that the, the presence of Paul as a leader because he's already had his shipwreck fire drill. He's actually been through them twice already. Because he's been through it, he's already made the decision that his life belongs to God, that 
Nothing can harm him. Nothing can hurt him. He's immortal until God wants to take him home. And his only purpose is the glory and power and majesty and advancement of the kingdom of God. And because he's already done that, he's available to serve other people, to, to, to be a leader, to have the presence of mind to not be in chaos himself, but to actually calm the people around him. And so he, he tells them, you guys need to eat. It's such a practical thing. You know, the Bible says that how blessed